I enjoy a nice glass of wine, but I don't pretend to be an expert in wine. I usually just want a wine that's high quality, delicious, and not too expensive. And to me, that's Bogle Family Vineyards. And here's the thing about Bogle. This is a third-generation family-owned winery from California that makes exceptional wines for about 10 bucks a bottle. Bogle wines consistently earn best buy designations and high ratings from wine enthusiasts. And let me tell you something. The folks at Wine Enthusiast, they drink a lot of wine. They drink a lot of fancy, expensive wine. And yet they still keep giving great ratings to Bogle. And Bogle Vineyards has so many different kinds of wine. Whatever your mood, whatever you're eating, there's a wine for you. They got this great Pinot Grigio that's crisp and fruity, goes well with spicy foods, with fish. They have a classic Chardonnay that's balanced, amazing, with a pork tenderloin or butter chicken. I like to take that Chardonnay and do what Jacques Pepin taught me, a couple of ice cubes in your glass of Bogle. If Jacques Pepin says it's okay, then it's okay. And there's the Bogle Pinot Noir, refined and elegant with bright fruit and about as food-friendly as a red wine can be. You're not going to believe it's only $10. Neither will your friends if you tell them. So pick up a few bottles of Bogle wherever you buy your favorite wines. Please drink responsibly. I saw that you did a Grub Street diet. Yeah. For the blog Grub Street. I always love you reading people's Grub Street diets. What did you think about mine? The thing that I zeroed in on, I think that you and I have something similar, Bryant. You said, I got a couple big meals coming up, big dinners that I'm really excited for. So you're planning out days in advance what you're eating and you're, you know, like saving stomach space. You, you don't want to overeat at lunch when you got a special dinner. These are the things that keep me awake at night. It's true. And I'm fueling up throughout the day. So I'm having like, you know, smoothies and vegetable juices. So things that are nutrient dense that are going to make sure that, you know, I got, I can keep it moving. Right. But nothing that's going to uh, weigh you down. Weigh me down. Exactly. It's like you're training. You're in training for a meal. I mean, that's. I just good way to look at it. <laughs> <laughs> hey, respect. I respect <laughs> that. <laughs> this is the Sporkful. It's not for foodies, it's for eaters. I'm Dan Pashman. Each week on our show, we obsess about food to learn more about people. Hey, quick note before we get into the show. Last week's episode was an update on Mission Impossible. Lots of big decisions and big news about the pasta shape I invented, including that our limited edition Cascatelli holiday gift box is on sale now. It includes a recipe booklet, a very adorable dish towel, and four boxes of pasta. We only made a limited number to ensure that you'll get them for the holidays, so order now at Sfolini.com. That's S-F-O-G-L-I-N-I.com. Okay, here we go. My guest this week is Bryant Terry. He's a James Beard award-winning cookbook author, chef, and educator. His books focus on vegan food generally, and black vegan food in particular. He's been a hugely influential voice in this space for nearly two decades. And now he's got a new title as a publisher at one of the big publishing houses. That means he'll be finding new cookbook authors and getting their work published. So he'll have even more influence on the food world in the years to come. We'll get more into all of that later. Growing up, Bryant was never far from a vegetable garden. He was born in Memphis and often went to visit relatives who owned farms in Mississippi and Tennessee. He also spent a lot of time with his grandparents, who grew a lot of their own food in South Memphis, a neighborhood near downtown with a long-standing and vibrant working-class Black community. My grandmother had, like, practically a mini orchard in her backyard. Pear trees, peaches, nectarines, apples. She had a kitchen garden. Um, and it was respectable. I mean, you know, it was, it was producing enough food for her to fill her larder uh, before winter with all types of pickled pears, peaches, sauerkraut, all types of preserves. 
My paternal grandfather, every bit of available space in his backyard was being used to grow food. I mean, he had muscadine grapes and walnut trees, and he was raising chickens back there at some point. I remember at one point there was a hog back there, (laughs) you know, all types of dark leafy greens and corns. And and so it was just an ethos that they had. It wasn't even anything special. They didn't talk about it. Like, oh, yeah, we're we're doing local seasonal sustainable (laughs) food. (laughs) Right, right, right. It was just— I'm, I'm hesitant to say it was it was like the way that they survived. It was the way that they thrived. I didn't like weeding and harvesting and shelling, you know, peas and shucking corn. But I, I am very clear that he was aware of the, the benefit of me being out there with him. And my grandfather used to say this often. When you have to rely on other people to feed you, if they decide they don't want to, you'll starve. And so everything that I've been trying to impart, teach people— in terms of health, food, and farming issues over the past two decades. These are lessons I learned as a young person from my family. Brian also learned a lot about food from pop culture. In high school, he got really into the socially conscious hip-hop group Boogie Down Productions. In 1990, they released an album called Edutainment, which included the song Beef. Am I right that your turn to being vegan started when you heard the song Beef? Oh, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) That song just, yeah, that, that song has a special place in my heart. Paint a picture for me the moment that you heard that song for the first time. I feel like someone had given me a tape to borrow, and I was just, like, kind of floored, you know? I just kept listening to it over and over again. Beef. What a relief. When will this poisonous product cease? This is another public service announcement. You can believe it or you can doubt it. Let us begin now with the cow. The way that it gets to your plate and how. The cow doesn't grow fast enough for man. So through his greed, he makes a faster plan. It's much more graphic, so I'll stop there. But, um, you know, hearing that, I, I, I like ran to my dad after listening to this song like 15 times. I'm like, Dad, you got to give me this tape because I had to get the tape back to my buddy. So he agreed to get it for me um, if I would first read this book, The Jungle by Upton Sinclair, um, because I had Tiger Dad. And so, uh, (laughs) you know, I credit that song, that book, the librarian who, you know, I checked the book out from who's a vegetarian and was like, oh, why are you interested in this book? Is it for school? And I was like, no, I want to be a vegan. I heard the song. And then she kind of like gave me other books and helped me learn more about veganism. So yeah, like that just really shifted my whole Uh, reality and change my habits, my attitudes, and my politics. When I was on that journey, and especially when I was saw myself as like, I'm a vegan now, whatever stereotypes you have about the most dogmatic, judgmental, self-righteous, finger-wagging, on a soapbox, just haranguing people, jerk of a vegan, that's who I was. (laughs) And I I, I asked my parents for forgiveness almost (laughs) weekly because I just was such a terror. So, So early on, it was more about the ethics of animals, the ethics of factory farming, and, like, when did it start to also become about health? I mean, that was part of it, too. Okay. Because growing up, my diet was very healthful because we literally would harvest food right before we ate. And and not that we never went out to, like, Pizza Hut. Yeah, we used to have Pizza Hut Fridays at our home sometimes. And right. those type of, you know, consuming industrial foods were a special treat. It was few and far between. So often what we hear about Southern food and soul food is this food is unhealthy. Um, It's racist. I want to get to that. (laughs) But, like, I'm curious from your personal perspective, like, 
we don't hear as much about how vegetable centric so much of that food is. And we certainly don't hear as much about the longstanding focus on vegetarianism and healthy eating in a lot of the black community going back decades, Mm -hmm. let alone the connection to vegetables and living off the land that traces back to Africa. How aware were you of all that as a young man first starting down that path? I was very aware of it because I had access to resources that helped me understand those histories and those practices. I think a lot of people have traditionally kind of seen that as like these practices of upper middle class white suburbanites and more recently more like, you know, urban white young folks gentrifying urban centers like Williamsburg, where I'm staying now, because I, <laughs> I love that neighborhood. <laughs> but, you know, um, my first contact with veganism were I mean, it was Black Seven Day Adventists in our community who told me about it. And, you know, obviously it was more theologically driven, but this idea that you don't have to eat animal products and it can have these benefits, I learned from them. And then after I had the obligatory, you know, kind of being fascinated with the Nation of Islam because I read the autobiography of Malcolm X and just being like, well, what is this thing? And learning about their health ministry. You yeah. know? Even like like uh, Dick Gregory, the great sort of comedian and social commentator, he wrote a whole a whole healthy eating cookbook. Cooking with Mother Nature. You know, that was an early book that mentors gave me. And just even talking to older, you know, there was a health food store in Memphis that I would often go to to get my new staples that I needed for my vegan diet. And I would meet Rastafarians and elderly Black folks who just were, you know, eating more healthily. So I had to, like, I was in community with a lot of Black people who were values aligned. And so I feel like it's important for me to uplift those legacies, as you said, because so often when we talk about veganism, we don't imagine like black people. And, and you know, the interesting thing, I don't know if you know this, but in terms of like the fastest growing population of vegans in the United States, it's black people. As much as people like to vilify African-American diets and and talk about how artery-clogging and unhealthy it is, those are reductive ways of thinking about a large, diverse, and complex uh, culinary traditions. And that's just one subset of it. But the foundations, the core of a lot of um, you know traditional Black diets are largely vegetable-centric. Just to back up what Bryant's saying, according to a Pew study, 8% of Black Americans are vegan or vegetarian, compared to only 3% of the general U.S. population. After high school, Bryant went to college at Xavier University in Louisiana, then got a master's in history at NYU. I learned how to write a lot better. I learned how to think a lot more critically. And much of the work that I was doing as a grad student, the research that I was doing, led me into this food work that I've done. Sometimes he thinks about going back to get a PhD. I do think that, you know, being a university professor would be a great kind of like, I don't know, third, fourth act for me, however you want to look at it. Doesn't publishing five cookbooks, <laughs> can you like swap that in instead of the PhD? I think I'm, I'm giving you a PhD, Brian. Okay, honorary PhD. Yeah, honorary PhD. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'll take I'll, that. I'll write it up. I'll, I'll give you a certificate before you leave. <laughs> Appreciate that. Sporkful you. That's right. <laughs> During his time in New York, Brian also started thinking more about what many kids in the city eat and the effect that has on their development. I probably saw young people on the subway, you know, in the morning eating candy bars and Red Hot Cheetos and drinking sodas and energy drinks. But in the midst of doing that research, I looked at it and I was like, oh, this is a problem. 
now I describe it as what my um, friend and mentor, Raj Patel, talks about, you know, stuffed and starved. I was like, oh, these young people, they're eating a lot of food, but these are empty calories. I'm like, this is breakfast. You shouldn't be eating that for breakfast, but just in general, the kind of nutrient-rich foods that uh, we all need, but especially young, developing bodies and minds, like, there has to be some intervention. As part of his graduate work, Bryant had done research on the Black Panthers. In the 60s, they created a free breakfast program for kids in low-income neighborhoods. It started in Oakland and spread to over 45 chapters across the country. And so I was really inspired by that work of the Black Panthers and decided to found this organization, Be Healthy, in response partially to noticing things like that and just feeling like we had gone off the rails and we really needed to um, figure out a way to take care of our young people. Bryant's nonprofit, Be Healthy, used cooking as a way to engage and inform young people from marginalized groups. He wanted to train them to be food justice activists in their communities. Bryant also enrolled in culinary school to get the skills and a degree that would help him run his nonprofit. But as he worked to educate younger Black people about veganism and healthier eating, he kept bumping up against a lot of the same misconceptions and stereotypes, even among the people he was trying to reach. A lot of Black folks have these very negative stereotypes about our own cuisine, these reductive ways of thinking about it. Oh, I'm not going to eat that soul food. That's so unhealthy. You know, that's why Black people are so sick. Without looking at the multiple factors that might contribute to public health crises in the Black community, from medical apartheid to, you know, environmental racism in many um, low-income Black communities where literally the air and the soil and the water is being poisoned or, you know, just the lack of access to healthy, fresh, affordable food in communities so that people can actually consume the things that are life-giving. So to, to, to pin it on our cultural foods is just BS. And I'm not denying, yeah, pig's feet and chitterlings or chitlins, however you want to say it. And, you know, all these kind of like stereotypes of just like what people see is like the remnants of the institution of slavery. You know, like those are the worst parts of the animals that Black people were just forced to eat. It's painting the institution as a monolith. You know, it looked different in the coastal Carolinas than in Louisiana, than in the Caribbean. You know, my thing is, we can hold it all. We can hold that, you know, the the, the remnants of the institution of slavery, we can hold the other way that I think people kind of imagine black food, which are the uh, big flavored meats and the overcooked vegetables and the, the the sugary desserts that you might find at a soul food restaurant. Yeah, that's a part of it too. But what about the food that my granddad was eating and cooking? You know, I, I, I hate that so often we like to fetishize these, you know, different nutrient-rich foods from other places. Goji berries and quinoa. Acai. Acai from Brazil. I'm like, what about the dark, you know, leafy greens like collards, mustards, turnips, kale, dandelions, sugar snap peas, pole beans, butter beans, black-eyed peas. Like, these are the foundations of any healthful diet. I think any dietitian, nutritionist, physician would say, we all should be eating a diverse diet with these type of foods. These are our cultural foods. These are our superfoods. When we come back, Bryant pitches his first cookbook about black vegan food and runs into obstacles. Plus, he tells me how he really feels about kale. Stick around. And now, a delicious word from our sponsors. Mm -mm, it's very good. 
In the Pashman household, we're already big fans of Tillamook shredded cheese. In fact, I used it in developing many recipes in my cookbook. And now I'm getting into their ice cream. Tillamook ice cream is made with more cream, so you get smooth and dreamy scoops each time. You may not realize it, but this is why a lot of the store-bought ice cream doesn't taste the same as what you get in, like, in an ice cream parlor. But with Tillamook, they don't skimp on the cream. These people know dairy, okay? Tillamook makes a great, rich vanilla ice cream with real crushed vanilla bean seeds. They have an Oregon strawberry, sweet strawberry ice cream with ripe Oregon strawberry pieces. The one that I really love is the mudslide flavor, a smooth chocolate ice cream with a ribbon of rich fudge and chocolatey chips. You want to move the spoon around to get fudgy and chocolatey chips and the ice cream all in the same bite each time, and it's just so, so nice. And like I said, I just trust Tillamook when it comes to dairy. They make over 200 different dairy products, and the brand is farmer-owned and led by dairy experts. Find Tillamook ice cream near you at Tillamook.com. That's T-I-L-L-A-M-O-O-K.com. This episode is brought to you by Merrick Pet Care. We have a dog. Her name is Sasha. She's almost four. She's a standard poodle. She's black and fluffy and soft and very adorable. And when we first got her, we took her to like this puppy kindergarten training class. The whole family went and, you know, they're teaching you how to use the treats and all this. The trainer watched Sasha for a bit and said, hmm, she's very food motivated. And my daughter, Emily, turned to me and said, she's a Pashman. (laughs) And so she is food motivated. And that's why we make a point of feeding Sasha high quality pet food. Founded in Hereford, Texas, Merrick has been crafting high quality dog food for over 30 years. Real is Merrick's recipe. So they always use deboned meat, fish or poultry as the number one ingredient. And let me tell you something. When it's dinner time, Sasha is motivated. Okay, she is highly motivated to come in from patrolling the backyard at dinner, to get up off the couch, whatever she's doing, she will drop it and come running. Check out Merrick online or in your local pet store and look for their new packaging with real ingredients shown on the bag and inside it. Are you ready for warmer weather? I know I am. But is your wardrobe ready? I just stocked up on spring and summer clothing at Quince. And let me tell you something. I'm feeling great about everything I got. I got a couple of short sleeve button down shirts, polo shirt, some shorts. Everything feels great. It's super high quality. And I can't believe how much stuff I got at a reasonable price. Quince has all the seasonal must-haves, like 100% European linen shirts from $30, performance polos, and versatile flow knit activewear. The best part? All Quince items are priced 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing practices, along with premium fabrics and finishes. Whatever you need for the spring and summer, Quince has your back. Upgrade your wardrobe. Go to quince.com slash sporkful for free shipping on your order and 365-day returns. That's Q-U-I-N-C-E dot com slash sporkful to get free shipping and 365-day returns. Quince.com slash sporkful. I just got a very wonderful shipment of goodies from the folks at Reese's. And let me tell you something. These people remain the absolute worldwide leaders in bringing together chocolate and peanut butter. Of course, we know that peanut butter cups remain transcendent. But have you tried the Reese's Sticks? They're wafers with peanut butter in between each wafer, all coated in chocolate. I mean, the combination of sweet chocolate and salty peanut butter just brings people joy, and the folks at Reese's do it better than anyone. So shop Reese's Peanut Butter Cups now at a store near you, found wherever candy is sold. Welcome back to The Sporkful. I'm Dan Pashman, and it's time for our annual tradition. I can't believe it's that time of year again. 
I want to hear your New Year's food resolutions. I want to know what's going to be on your menu in 2022. If you've always thought about sending us a resolution, but you just never got around to it, this is your year. Record a voice memo on your phone. First, tell me your name and where you're from. That part's really important. Then tell me this. What food do you resolve to eat more of in the new year and why? Send it to me at hello at sporkful.com and you may hear yourself in our year-end spectacular. Again, that's hello at sporkful.com. Thanks. Okay, let's get back to Bryant Terry. In 2006, after four years running his New York nonprofit, Be Healthy, Bryant decided to shutter the organization and move his cooking and activism in a new direction. He moved to Oakland and co-wrote a cookbook with Anna LaPay called Grub, Ideas for an Urban Organic Kitchen. Off the success of that book, he decided to pitch his first solo cookbook, Vegan Soul Kitchen. We shopped it to about 12 publishers, and 10 of them flat out said no. Mm-mm. And, and what we heard was, well, it's just you're cutting the, the pie too thinly. Uh, I literally had one of these editors be like, well, it's kind of oxymoronic. Black people and vegan, you know, like people just thought, some of these people thought it was absurd. And I recognize that there were some editors who were very enthusiastic about the idea. But when the number crunchers came in and then they were looking at the potential of it making money, they just didn't feel like there was a big enough audience for it. Eventually, Bryant did find a publisher for Vegan Soul Kitchen. The book came out in 2009. Over the next several years, he wrote two more cookbooks. One of them, Afro-Vegan, was named by Bon Appetit as one of the best vegetarian cookbooks of all time. In 2015, he became the chef-in-residence at the Museum of the African Diaspora in San Francisco, where he creates public programming that relates to a lot of the issues he's been working on for so many years. Then, last year, right at the start of the pandemic, he released the cookbook Vegetable Kingdom, got a ton of great attention, sold well, and won an NAACP Image Award. Brian's work has put him right at the intersection of a bunch of hot-button issues in food. So, I knew what I had to do. All right, Brian, I got a lightning round coming your way. Let's go. Let's I'm gonna, do it. I'm gonna, I love lightning rounds. All right, all right. Here <laughs> comes a lightning round, Brian. You ready? We'll add in a sound effect later. Sure, it would be great if everyone ate vegan and vegetarian, but that food is too expensive. Let me just say this. That argument always... The the main thing about that argument that bothers me is because it is really relying on this individualistic approach to eating well. And I think that's the biggest problem. We need to think about ways in which we can be in community eating better together, right? I don't know if this is lightning. I feel like this is like a thunderstorm. <laughs> <laughs> I could stop. No, no, but, that, I, I, but I, I understand what you're saying. Yeah. I mean, I get it. Like, a lot of people are working a lot. They're working one or two, jo- two maybe three jobs because they can't find a job that pays a living wage that would allow them to right. just work one thing and be able to have well, more time the, with right. their family. So that you have these larger economic factors that yeah. put people in a position where they have no choice but to go pick up McDonald's on the way home from their second job. If we were to ensure that people got like a living wage, then that would address a number of these issues. There are a lot of structural barriers that I think could be addressed through public policy that we need to be paying attention to. Next item. Often when a an area does get an increase in uh, access to a broader range of healthier food options, it comes with gentrification. When you see that happening in an area, that feels like a, a difficult tension. I'm, how, how, do you, how do you process that? Can I curse on here? Sure. It's bullshit. <laughs> I mean, look, 
Gentrification is not just about, like, white people who two decades ago wouldn't have considered moving in Brooklyn, and now people are like, oh, I'm living in Brooklyn. That's not what it's about. It's about corporations, you know, buying up blocks, buying up neighborhoods, building, you know, expensive buildings that raise the rent and push out long-term residents. So I I, I know people say that, you know, like, well, yeah, there, there are some benefits to gentrification. Look, I can— Talk about the 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 changes that I saw in 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 my neighborhood. I saw the supermarket across the street. I, I was like, oh, now I'm seeing kombucha. Now I'm seeing like right. you know kimchi. Now I'm seeing all these things, and I was happy about that. But I think this idea that like, well, gentrification can be good because it brings in like more options. That's a very simplistic way of looking at gentrification. So gentrification is economic violence. Period. Kale versus collard greens. Damn, collards. <laughs> well, I, I mean, like, if you want to boil down so much of what we're talking about, though, to something that you can, like, hold in your hands, this to me is it's such a, it crystallizes so many of these issues of perception of different people's foods. Mm-hmm. I mean, they're in the same family of cabbage, and yet the perception and where you will find them sold and served yeah. and what they are and what they cost— and how they are discussed is radically different. Yeah. I'll say this. Collards for eating, kale for smoothies. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so I'll leave it at that. What's your take on the new meat substitutes, like impossible Ooh. meat, beyond meat? No. Okay. <laughs> I mean, look, I just had an impossible uh, burger for the first time, like, two weeks ago. I had it, and it was fine. I'm like, yeah, if I'm out drinking and there were some impossible burgers on the menu, I might get one. But let me tell you the thing that really irks me about the ascendance of a lot of these fake meat burgers. Many of the places that I would go to restaurants that used to have these super inventive and interesting, like, house-made plant-based burgers with, like, whole grains and legumes and vegetables— and they were just killing it. I go back to these places now, and they're like, well, we have Impossible Burger or Beyond Burger. And I, that's what irks me. You know, it's it's taking away from the creativity of chefs who could really bring their technical skill and know-how to introduce people to more options. That's the end of the lightning round, Brian. You survived the lightning round. Whew. All right. <laughs> <laughs> I think you see why Bryant is a leading voice in his field. And now his platform is bigger than ever. Back in May, he announced that he was starting his own publishing imprint, Four Color Books, which would be part of Penguin Random House. Four Color is a reference to the printing process that prints books in full color, and also a nod to the idea of including more people of color in publishing, both as authors and target audience. As publisher at Four Color, Bryant now has the power to decide what kinds of authors and cookbooks get published. Last month, he released the first book under his imprint, one he edited himself called Black Food. Over 100 people contributed recipes, blending styles and influences from across the African diaspora and beyond. But that's not it. There are essays by folks like Michael Twitty, Osai Endelin, and Dr. Jessica B. Harris, plus art, poetry, and music playlists. Yuande Komalafa contributed a recipe of crispy cassava skillet cakes from West Africa. The pastry chef Paula Velez has a recipe for flan de arroz con dulce, a hybrid dish inspired by her Afro-Dominican roots. Karina Rivera, a chef from Mexico City, has a recipe for charred okra tamales. As I told Bryant, reading this book feels like joining an ongoing conversation about the many facets of black food. It felt to me like it's not just a cookbook, or a collection of of essays or 
art. It's an immersive experience. First of all, I'm going to have to bite that term because thus far people talk about it being a tome and a compendium. But for now, I'm going to be like, it's an immersive experience. Take it. It's yours. Yeah, go for it. (laughs) (laughs) What I'm doing in this book, I've done this all along. Like if you look at my body of work, I've always had some type of like inclusion of art. I've had the suggested soundtracks. I, you know— offer ideas about books and films to help build it out. This is just the first time I've gotten, like, a lot of money to do it so well <laughs> and beautifully. But, 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 but that, that's how you were able to do it so well, is that you had been preparing and doing it in other venues for a long time. Yes. I'm clear. I always say that my every other project I did prepared me to write this. And so I used to be embarrassed about, like, whenever I do a new book, I'd be like, oh, I, I hate that other project. Like, the prior book, oh, that book sucked. I could have did this. I could have done that. And I've reframed it now as, you know what? I was practicing in public. So as we said, this book includes playlists. A lot of people listen to music when they cook. But I, I think that that for you and your work, that connection between food and cooking and music is especially powerful. It has a deeper significance. Mm-hmm. Coming from a musical family, like when we had gatherings, there was food, there was music because my family, I come from a family of musicians, so people are always singing, playing the piano. There was community building. There was bringing in folks from not just our family, but from the neighborhood and there, my family's faith institutions. And then we would be sharing bags of the surplus from their right. orchards and gardens. See, like that, that's what reading this book felt like to me. Huh. It felt like being at a, at a family picnic or at a party and like there's great music on and there's folks in the kitchen who are cranking out different dishes and you walk through the kitchen and grab something off a plate and there's some other folks in the corner over there who are mixing drinks and passing out the drinks. And there's some folks over here who are laughing. And then there's some folks over here that are like having a deep, intense philosophical conversation. Like that's a that's the perfect party, you know. And, and that and that's what this book you're, felt you're like. Me all types of amazing talking. Yeah. Points. <laughs> <laughs> this, is a, this book is a party. Yeah, that's right. This is how I want you to understand. It's an immersive party experience. <laughs> right. like, <laughs> well, I'm done writing books. I don't know if you know that this is my last book. Really? I know I was not aware of that. Yeah, Black Food is is my last book. And, you know, I, I didn't write it. I compiled it. But, yeah, I'm done after this. But also, now that I'm a publisher, I, I need to clear my plate so that I can focus on learning how to be a good publisher. If we take a step back, there has been this increasing effort in the last, especially the last year, but the last few years to shine more of a light on the diversity of black food and black Americans' contributions to American food. Mm -hmm. From my perspective as a white person from a mostly white suburb, a lot of this was new to me, to be honest. Mm. It feels to me like there's some progress, certainly more to be done. But like, I'm curious from your perspective, like, Does it feel like things are changing? I'll tell you what. I was very clear we would see post the uprisings and the embarrassment of of a lot of these big companies because of their unsavory practices. Why am I saying unsavory? Because they're racist practices. (laughs) Stop trying to be all, like, diplomatic. (laughs) Um. You know, people are trying to repair reputational harm. People are embarrassed. And not that the institutions don't have good people in them who 
understand the need to bring more diverse voices into food media. I, I, I get that. But it's also about like, yeah, like we look bad now. We got to fix this really quickly. And so what we'll see over the next couple of years are a lot of books and TV shows and, and you know, all types of projects that are coming from Black slash BIPOC folks around food. And, you know, I'm afraid, and many people are arguing that that door is starting to close already. You know, I'm like, yeah, the door's going to be open, and then we need to be very, like, conscious about when it's starting to close. And and like I said, some people are like, yeah, it's kind of starting to close. People are getting comfortable again. (laughs) And so my thing is, it's one thing to reward, quote-unquote, talent, you know, giving out book deals, giving out shows. But what about ensuring that, the people who are in decision-making power. We need to make sure that those spaces are diversified. We need to make sure that you're seeing more black and brown faces who connect with the culture, who have a a real investment in ensuring that, you know, we hear multiple voices. And and, and that's why uh, it was important for me, um, for my agent and me, to um, pitch this imprint and actually have the opportunity to, you know, not just mentor and kind of guide different food creators, but actually help them um, take their career to the next level with book deals. And for folks who who haven't published a book, which is most of our listeners, um, and, and who don't understand the inner workings of publishing, you get an advance. I wrote a book a few years back, and, and I... I <laughs> I did. I thought the advance. I thought that meant like, oh, you get paid that in advance. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's not what the word advance means in this context. It is an advance against royalties, yeah. <laughs> and it is paid out in increments over a couple of years. Yep. And if your book sells beyond where your royalties would have gotten to that point, then you may make more. But most books don't. Yeah, a lot of people aren't earning those advances out. <laughs> right. Right. Obviously, it's nice to get paid more for your work. What are some of the other ways in which a larger advance impacts the process? I mean, look, I I think what people need to understand is that a lot of people who are getting book deals, they're paltry. If you don't have like a huge platform, you're not necessarily getting a a, a big advance unless you're just like, you know, hot at the moment. Even people who are lucky enough to get like, let's say a six-figure advance, right? That sounds like a lot, but when you think about how – typical book deal is structured. So you might get like a little bit of that when you first sign. Maybe it's a third, maybe it's a fourth. And then when you turn your book in, you'll get another little chunk of it. And then when you- When it publishes. Yeah, when it publishes, you get a little chunk. And then six months later or a year later, you get a chunk. I don't want to discourage anyone from writing books or becoming an author, because if, if you're passionate about it, do it. You know, you got to like, whatever, push through it. Everything's hard, you know, like <laughs> life is hard. And so I encourage you to put the work in, but just be clear going into it. This is not IG. This is real life. So as for your publishing imprint, Four Color Books, where do you hope to see it in 10 years? You know, with all the authors that I'm working with, I really want them to be able to grow their excuse the colonialist language, their empire. <laughs> you know, like Rohana Bitharet Martinez, uh, the now 17-year-old Oakland-based chef, which was the first acquisition that Four Color uh, made. She's a runner-up on Top Chef Junior. When she was 13, she's staged at Chez Panisse and Ecoy in London and cooked at the James Beard House. I mean, this young woman is a genius. And she's telegenic. 
She's smart. She needs her own TV show. I don't want her just to write books. I want her to like grow her reach in whatever way she wants to. I mean, I imagine she wants to show, but if she wants to, I want to be like use my my social capital, my platform to help her get that. And I feel like that way with many of the authors that I work with. And and I see Four Color helping to just kind of support that. Bryant tells me about another chef who he thought could write a great cookbook, but the chef didn't have publishing experience, didn't know how to shape a book proposal. So Bryant and his team worked directly with the chef, which is very unusual in the industry. More often, an agent would work with a chef to shape a proposal, then take it to publishers. Bryant took a more active role in mentoring an author who he thought had potential. I think one of the most powerful things that I imagine Four Color will do as an imprint is modeling. Modeling how things could be done differently in the publishing industry. Modeling the way that, you know, when you bring more diversity into uh, publishing, everybody wins. I do imagine that Four Color will be doing things so differently that people are going to take notice so that, you know, people will be inspired to consider ways that they can do it differently as well. Brian Terry, publisher of Four Color Books and editor of the new book, Black Food, Stories, Art, and Recipes from Across the African Diaspora. I really love this book. It's an immersive party experience. What more do you need to know? Okay, get it now wherever books are sold. Next week on the show, we're heading to the Library of Congress for a holiday luncheon hosted by the library's cooking club. The two women who run the club, you're not going to believe this. Their names are Laverne and Shirley. But despite their efforts, the club has been dwindling over the last couple of decades. Can Laverne and Shirley revive it? We'll find out. That's next week. And don't forget, limited edition Cascatelli holiday gift boxes are on sale now. Go to Spolini.com to get yours in time for the holidays. This show is produced by me along with senior producer Emma Morgenstern and producer Andres O'Hara. Our editor is Tracy Samuelson. The show is mixed by Jared O'Connell. Music help from Black Label Music. The Sporkful is a production of Stitcher. Our executive producers are Peter Clowney and Daisy Rosario. Until next time, I'm Dan Pashman. And I'm Zane Rahim in Ypsilanti, Michigan, reminding you to eat more, eat better, eat more better. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. With the Internet's best converting checkout, 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms, Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers. In fact, Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash podcast free. All lowercase, shopify.com slash podcast free, shopify.com slash podcast free. (laughs) 